As Spade mentioned, our scripture reading this morning is in James chapter 4. So if you will turn there, in just a second I will read that very important passage. But I just wanted to echo what Spate said about the, the people in Turkey and Syria. We just continue to pray for them. This morning, uh, the news death toll was 28,000 so far, and that's not injured. That's uh, people who have died, and uh, no way to count those who have been injured or displaced. The church in that region is small and under persecution, has been, but very effective. And uh, uh, it's, it's astonishing over the centuries, right from the second century up until today, when there has been a huge disaster strike, the church has been the first to arrive and the last to leave. And I am so thankful for that. So pray for them and for their witness uh, as they engage in that ministry. Thank you, uh, Spate, for praying for them. Uh, our, our scripture reading is in uh, James chapter 4. I'm going to start with verse 13. This is where we uh, we, we fit, uh, where Lewis left off last week. So we'll complete the chapter this morning and see what the Lord has for us. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is a fun passage. And I am excited to get into it. But here's the concern that I have because the Belvas and the Bowers are now in India and I think we should be deeply disappointed in them. Come now, you who make plans that you shall go to India and spend 10 days there. Engage in helping the Hatton's business so that the workers can make a profit. Is that what James is talking about? It, it, is, <laughs> is James talking about how they, we, they should not have taken supplies? Does James mean that they should not have made travel plans? The Lord will provide, right? They should just go, go to the airport and let the Lord lead you to which airplane you should go to. And, and if you have enough faith, the attendants will let you ride on, right? And you're sitting there thinking, boy, that is a cheesy introduction to this passage. That's obviously not what this passage is saying. Well, then what is it saying? How do we avoid abusing what it's saying? Because there's a danger here. And does it have any connection with what James has just said in the previous verses? And how do we apply that to today? So that's what we're going to consider, and we're going to look in, into uh, this passage and, and look into what James called in chapter 1 the mirror of the Word so that we can see ourselves. Jesus talked about being in the world but not being of the world. And James gives us a case study of those who say they are believers but are truly of the world. And the strange thing is, the sin that is described here is merely 
sidestepping God's will. It's, it's not doing something. It's not doing what you know you should do. It's not actually a sin that's one of the Ten Commandments. It doesn't even make the list. But James addresses a problem here for the first time in the first book of the New Testament, addresses a problem here that the church will deal with century by century as time passes. And that problem that becomes bigger and bigger is the problem when the church snuggles up to the culture. And when we get too close to the culture, we begin to develop the attitude that Jesus is Lord. He is worthy. For an hour and a half on Sunday morning. But the rest of Sunday and the rest of my life, mm, that's my own. The rest of the week, my business is my business. My wife is my wife. My children are my children. My health is my health. My entertainment is my entertainment. My hobbies are my hobbies. James says, mm, not so fast. Not so fast. This is a sin we will call a sin of omission. But there is another stream that is flowing into this passage from the context. And that is the idea of living in humility. Humility has permeated every section that we have studied so far in this book. And, and humility in the Bible is not being subservient, Uriah Heap, you know. It's not being passive to everybody around you. It doesn't downplay achievements or skills. It just knows where they come from, from the Father of lights. James has said this in 117, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Humility, godly humility, is living in the knowledge of who you are and of who God is and of who you aren't. In our growth group, Katie Jones reminded us of C.S. Lewis's definition. I told you I'd quote it today. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And we might add, and thinking more of God. James began his book this way. He called himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in, seven, in, in 13, 13 times in his 13 epistles calls himself the bond slave of Jesus Christ. A bond slave is someone who yields his rights to his master, recognizing that Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign, and I'm not. Humility is not just one more virtue in the Bible. It's embedded in the gospel. It's how we're saved. Do you remember, and James would know this, James would know what Jesus said about the repentant tax collector as opposed to the religious Pharisee. I'm reading from Luke 16. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is foundational to the gospel. It's also foundational to our relationships with one another, with family, with church, with friends, with people around us. And James has already put humility and its opposite arrogance under the microscope. We studied that arrogance in the last two verses last week. We'll look back in chapter 4, verse 6. 
God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of God, and he will exalt you. In last week, Lewis referred to Jesus as humbling himself. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Whereas, therefore, God highly exalted him. See, it's all part of a piece. It's all a part of the same deep truth of who we are and of who God is. Now, I can get into the weeds even more here. If, if you're having trouble following this, I have an opportunity for you to get lost even more. James has also talked about the royal law. God is the king, and Jesus summarized God's law. Love God, love your neighbor. Last week in verses 11 and 12, we saw the opposite of humility is not loving your neighbor. It's the arrogance of judging your brother. There's one lawgiver, one judge, and he's not you. That was verse 12. In fact, instead of judging, give your brother or sister a best-case interpretation. So in verses 11 and 12, what we studied last week, that's the opposite of humility in relation to your brother and sister. And now today, in verses 13 through 17, James gives the opposite of humility in relation to God. So last week, arrogance with relation to your brother. Today, arrogance with relation to God. What is your attitude towards God? Is he worthy? So putting this together, hope the weeds aren't too high yet, putting this together, in verses 11 and 12, what humility towards others is not. In verses 13 through 17, what humility towards God is not. So last week, don't assume. This week, don't presume. Stop presuming that you're in control, living life without the God that you profess. Be humble towards God. So I hope the weeds haven't gotten too high. If you're James, you're thinking, you know, how do I communicate the idea of a negative of not presuming towards God. That sounds abstract. How do I communicate that? I have an idea. We have a chair. And in this chair, we're going to put people who have different professions, and we're going to talk to them. Uh, in this chair for right now, for this illustration, James is going to put an imaginary group of Jewish business men and women uh, who travel for business. I'm including women because we see them in the Bible as well engaged in this. And, but it's not just one profession. This is an illustration. Uh, you could put in teachers, lawyers, doctors, uh, stonemasons, carpenters, tax collectors, accountants, mechanics, uh, farmers, soldiers, anybody, not just this one profession. But business was always the largest profession, and so it's an illustration that everybody would get. So James uses that, and he recreates a conversation with the people in the chair. Verse 13, come now, you who say, you who are saying, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. So they're having this conversation among themselves. That's what they say among themselves. Is that an evil conversation? 
I mean, do you look at those words and, 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 and think, boy, that, that is such a sinful statement. You know, that is a, an R-rated statement. No. It describes four things. The target market, such and such a city. James says, you fill in the blank. The calendar for a strategic plan, one year. The objective for implementing the plan, engage in business. Doesn't specify what kind. Anything will fit. And the bottom line is the bottom line. Make a profit. Just four things. Is there anything wrong with having a business plan? No, God doesn't condemn good planning. Jesus taught us about counting the cost as an illustration uh, for construction. Is there anything wrong with making a profit? No, God has, doesn't condemn having money, just loving money. Is there anything wrong with having plans at all? No. Is there anything wrong with Christians being in business or trade? No. In fact, several script, uh, Christians in Scripture use their businesses to honor the Lord. Um, when Paul was at Philippi, I want you to listen to this. The first convert, the first person to accept Jesus as her Savior in Europe, first person, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul, first convert in Europe. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You know what Lydia's doing here? She's immediately using her wealth, uh, her possessions, to host the missionary team as a base for evangelism. That's really pretty cool. Pretty amazing. But the winners of the Super Bowl for business travel in the first century are Aquila and Priscilla. I'm going to give you a timeline for their travel because there's a lot of weeds I could get in here. But putting together the timeline for the New Testament and the book of Acts and how the epistles fit, I'm going to just tell you where they were. In A.D. 51, Paul arrives in Corinth. And there at Corinth are Priscilla and Aquila. They had come from Pontus. They were, then went to Rome. And they had to leave Rome when there was an edict against the Jews and they went to Corinth, and there they met Paul. They hired him because he was also a tent maker, which was their business, apparently a pretty big business. So there they are, A.D. 51 in Corinth. A.D. 52, one year later, Paul leaves Corinth. And guess what? He takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. And they set up another business in Ephesus and do the same thing. Five years later, A.D. 57, they are back in Rome, the original place where they had their business. And Paul says, greet, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. A.D. 67, 10 years later, okay, 10 years later still, they're back in Ephesus again. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. And you know, uh, Romans 16 tells us what they were doing. You, you have to listen to this. This is pretty amazing. Paul calls them my beloved 
fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Priscilla and Aquila, over 15-year time span, use their, their, uh, their, their profession, their business, for kingdom purposes. And, and not only that, wherever they went, I didn't read you the verses, they hosted house churches in their home. They nurtured missionaries. And they even discipled a man named Apollos. Astonishing. Priscilla, Aquila, Lydia, and from other passages, Gaius, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, and Aristos, the city treasurer of Corinth. All of these people are in high-profile professions in the New Testament. They all are a sharp contrast to the business people that James is talking to. Those are not the people who are sitting in this chair. When you read verse 13, though, the plans that they describe don't sound like evil plans or plans to do evil. So what's the problem, God? Well, here's the problem. James will make it clear. Their plans presume life without God. They are practicing atheists. Their plans exclude him. God, this is our business, and it's none of your business. But it's not just about business. As I mentioned earlier, it's about compartmentalizing God away from other areas of your life. You're saying, you know, in this area, I have sovereignty and not God. It's not yours, God. And whenever you see that attitude, there's a huge red flag flying over their soul. Later, the apostle Paul puts it this way. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now, you can poke holes. The people that are sitting here with their business plan, you can poke holes in the plan because it's assuming way too much responsiveness of markets, not allowing for anything that might possibly derail them from their, their uh, plans. But the biggest presumption, the litmus test of a biblical worldview that where James pulls back hard on their leash is they're assuming that they're going to be alive tomorrow. <laughs> Verse 14, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, much less a year from now. And, and, and the Greek of the first part of this verse can be punctuated differently. I, I believe the correct way, and I can give, give reasons for that if you are interested afterwards, that it should be punctuated this way. You do not know about tomorrow. What is your life? What is your life? And, and, the, and the sense of the question is, what is your life really? I mean, let's be honest here. What is your life really? It's a vapor. James compares your life and his life to a swirl of steam that escapes from a pot that's over the fire when you lift off the lid. That's your life right there. Elsewhere, the Bible uses other pictures of it. The Bible describes your life like a shadow, like grass that will fade, like a flower of the field, like breath, like a cloud that just poofs goes away. James' point is clear. Life is, it's like a, a vapor. 
We see this in the news, don't we, in the tragedy in Turkey and Syria. So these businessmen and women in this chair would have been aware, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, just focusing back on them, James would have been aware of his brother Jesus' parable about the rich fool. I'm going to read this parable. It's about a Jewish businessman making plans. And I'm going to emphasize the pronouns. I'm just going to read it. Just listen. It's from Luke 12, though. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place for my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down, tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, and he puts himself in the chair to congratulate himself, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The moment his plans were complete, he contracted, he contracted with the architect, drawn up his plans. All of those things were the moment that all of his plans about himself and for himself evaporated like a vapor. Now, I know it sounds like this, but I'm not trying to stand up here and say, y'all better watch out because you might die this afternoon before the Super Bowl. That's not, what I'm, that's not what I'm trying to say. The point is that right now you have the gift of life. So do you thoughtlessly spend it on yourself or do you invest it with your king? For eternal purposes. That's the difference between worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom that James talked about in chapter 3. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, and here's the difference between earthly and heavenly wisdom. Verse 15, uh, if the Lord wills, we will live. Do you catch that? It doesn't say if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. The Lord wills, we'll, we'll be alive <laughs> tomorrow. And and do also do this or that. When I was a boy, there used to be a, a, a saying I, that I grew up hearing, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Yeah, how many of you have never heard that before? Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Okay, all right. All right, we need to enculturate some folks here. And the idea behind it, <laughs> Lord willing and the creek don't rise. It's kind of funny if you think about it. <clears throat> Because it would be saying, you know, I'm going to go to town across the bridge if the sovereign Lord of creation permits it and if the sovereign all-powerful creek doesn't wash out the Arminian bridge or something like that. I don't know what it is. So. But J James's point here is not to add a magical formula to all our pronouncements. That's not good either. It's like taking you know, the, the, the words in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer, that somehow God that punches God's ticket so that it ascends to heaven. 
No, there's a whole theology of naming in the Bible. There's great significance to in Jesus' name. And there's great significance to this statement, if God wills. That's, it, it's an, and, and it's not always stated. Sometimes it is. I mean, Paul says this. He's talking to the elders at Ephesus, and he tells, and he tells them as he's leaving, I will return to you again if God wills. And there are five, that's one, there, there, are, there are six altogether in the New Testament where that is explicitly stated and added to a conversation about future plans six times. But not always, not every time. But the point is, it was always a part of their attitude of submitting their plans to God's plans. It's hard, and it was a worldview statement of where your heart is. It's hard to imagine this, that some TV preachers claim that if you condition your plans by the words, if God wills, that shows a lack of faith. What he's saying is it's just the opposite. This is a statement of faith. Look at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 16 continues, but as it is, that is the compartmentalizing of God to your religious life, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. For a person not to live in the awareness that they are in God's hand is to claim sovereignty over reality that's not yours. You're not looking at your life and your plans that you've made and your relationships and saying, mine. Jesus says, no, mine. And you are mine. One pastor wrote about this poignantly. And I'm just going to read you the statement that he made, I think uh, it makes the point well. If God would just do what I thought he should, I'd trust him more. If he'd just come through for me, I'd give him more of my life. If he made my life better and pain-free, I'd believe him more passionately. But any time God didn't meet my expectations, we had a problem. God created me in his image, and I returned the favor and created him in mine. The kind of God I wanted to believe in was this. If he's not what I want, then he can't have my whole life. It's compartmentalized. You're boasting, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And now we come to the last statement that James, that James makes in verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him... It is sin. This is the third of five therefores in the book of James. And this one may be a conclusion to this whole section, not just these verses. Some people wonder if this verse has anything to do with what's gone before. But all through the book of James, knowing requires doing. If I don't do what I know I should do, he's calling me out. It's sin. This is a proverb about the sin of omission. The sin of omission. Betsy grew up at the Signal Mountain Presbyterian Church with Dr. Thorington, her pastor, when she was a little girl. And she remembers every Sunday that Dr. Thorington would pray that God would forgive their sins of commission and their sins of omission. Sins we commit, commission, we get that. But what about omission? 
Sins of commission when we do the wrong thing. Sins of omission when we don't do the right thing. Sometimes we downplay the idea of that or we don't think about it, but God doesn't downplay it. One older New Testament scholar is named Randolph Tasker. He observed that many of Jesus' parables are actually focused not on doing something wrong, but on not doing something right. And he gave several examples, but one of them is probably the best known is the story of the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite pass by the man who's been attacked by robbers, left in the ditch to die. The priest and the Levite pass by, and they are not condemned because they attacked him or because they robbed him or because they said anything unkind to him. They are condemned because they were so absorbed in their own plans that they couldn't see deep need in front of them, and they did not care to love their neighbor. So James 4.17 literally says, if you don't do what you should do, literally, sin to to him it is. Sin to him it is. The reason I put it that way is because that's the way the text reads. When the object precedes the verb, the emphasis is on something important. Here's some examples. John writes, the word flesh became. All right, the word became flesh. Emphasize the flesh. Jesus said, my judgment righteous is. Thy word truth is. How about this one? God love is. And here, sin to him it is. Knowing requires doing, and God takes that seriously. Take a look at the, do you have the bulletin, your bulletin? Take a look on the very back page. Just pull it out, take a look on the very back page. Do you see the calendar items? Is there, do you see the letters D, V? Somewhere above that? Do you see the letters DV? Do you know what they stand for? Anybody know? Deo Valente, God willing. Latin for if the Lord wills. The point is, whether or not you utter the words, if God wills, or Deo Valente, don't compartmentalize God from any part of your life. That's arrogance. Humility invites you to revel in the understanding that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Your plans are embedded in his plans. I think there's just great comfort here. I want you to think about it. Whose hands would you want to be in? Your own? Really? Satan's? I don't think so. Or your good friend down the road? No. Whose hands would you want to be in other than the one who loves you so much that he'd rather die than live without you? Your Savior. That's whose hands we are in. Our King who loves us that much. I think it's um, probably appropriate for me to mention this because it's been a year now. Uh, I had retirement plans that I had worked on and made contacts for for about three years. And uh, in those retirement plans, I was going to uh, 
be part-time here. Technically, I'm quarter-time. <laughs> uh, but I was also going to return to part-time teaching. Um, because the college and seminary classroom's always been a love of mine. And uh, two years ago, I had uh, six schools lined up to sort of pick from, I thought. Uh, and then reality hit. One of them was overseas, and COVID canceled that one. One of them was closed. School went out of business in its Chattanooga extension. One of them was a seminary that had the funding lined up, the building lined up, and everything was ready to be launched, but it never launched. It was a, well. One of them was a school where the man I was to replace did not retire. How dare he? One of them was uh, a place where I started to teach but didn't continue after a second semester because of reasons of um, principle, I'll say. One school, the sixth one, was, was very excited, uh, all the way up to the department chair and then all the way up to the academic dean, and we were going to get things going, but then suddenly, nothing. No word, nada. And uh, I found out later it had to do with board politics. How do six solid opportunities fall through? Or what I thought were solid. What are the odds? But then, my calendar was free. And I went through a 10-month process. And I was available to help my friend Joe. He received my kidney a year ago this week. I believe it's been that long. You found out about it a year ago today. That would not have happened if I had been teaching. And from what I have learned since, even a delay until school was out would not have been good for Joe in his condition. Um, by the way, update, Joe is doing great with what he calls Gary Jr. <laughs> Bessie and I can look back on it and see, I get it. <laughs> I get it. I, I get it. I get it. I'm not sovereign. <laughs> Had my plans, there were certain plans, but he had bigger plans. And I'm not sovereign over my plans, God is. And he wants me to hold my plans with an open hand, understanding who he is. Was it wrong for me to make those plans? No, because God is my sovereign king. And that makes a worldview of difference on how I think about the plans that I make. And if my plans get changed, then God has something more for me to learn or to do from the detour. And I'll find out that the detour wasn't really a detour. It was his plan all along because God causes all things to work together for good.
Remember Genesis 50, verse 20. You meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph speaks to his brother to bring about this present result. So, of course, we continue to make our plans. This year, our plans were changed by Betsy's diagnosis of cancer. Um, as you know, she's been through her first round of radiation and chemo. She's feeling well now, and we'll find out in a couple of weeks uh, where we go from here. But our plans were changed. Again, in Betsy's comment, see, she's not here. She's babysitting our grandkids in Knoxville. I can just have fun with her. Her comment, her comment when uh, <clears throat> she was diagnosed a few months ago was this. The Lord has given me an opportunity to prove my faith. Many of you have already heard me tell, talk about that because it's impacted me very deeply. So, humble yourselves, verse four, chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Check your heart. If you have your devotions in the morning and make your plans, whether they're long-term plans or just plans for the day or plans for the morning, Submit those plans to God and then submit your attitude about those plans to God. Check your heart. And when things go great, according to plan, what that means is your plans align with His plans, then rejoice. When things get challenging and don't go as you planned, what James tells us is to count it all joy. Not because it's joyful, but because God is God and you're not. And God is giving you an opportunity to prove your faith. Check your heart. I'm going to close with these words of grace from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9. This is what the Lord says. Let no wise man boast of his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast of his might, nor a rich man boast of his riches, but let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises mercy, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. We can trust him with our plans. Deo valente. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for your grace. And we ask, Lord, that our attitude would conform more and more each day uh, as our minds are transformed into the image of your Son. We pray this in his name.